Something that I, I like to say to myself when I'm getting into obsessive thinking is I don't have to react to everything. I think that's especially useful for me in the classroom because there's 22 kids and as long as they're not threatening safety, physical safety or emotional safety, I don't necessarily need to react to everything that is said or done. Are you a teacher? How has recovery changed the way you teach? What recovery tools do you use in the classroom? Welcome to episode 371 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by KC, Kristen, Barkley, Mark, Margo, and Gianna. Thank you, KC, Kristen, Barkley, Mark, Margo, and Gianna, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you and, of course, everybody else who's listening. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer and I am your host today. Joining me today is Rajni. Welcome, Rajni. Where are you coming to us from? I am in San Francisco, California. Rainy San Francisco today. Which is a good thing. Yes. Very good thing. To replenish some of our reservoirs. Hopefully, yeah. We always like to open with a reading, and you've picked one from Courage to Change to open with. Yeah, so it's Courage to Change, January 12th, and this is one of my favorites, actually. Early one morning, I stopped to watch a colony of bees. A little intimidated by the frenzied motion and intense buzzing, I reminded myself that if I didn't poke my nose into their hive, I wouldn't get stung. If I chose to maintain a safe distance from a dangerous situation, I would be fine. To me, that is exactly the lesson that detachment teaches. The choice is mine. When I sense that a situation is dangerous to my physical, mental, or spiritual well-being, I can put extra distance between myself and the situation. Sometimes this means that I don't get too emotionally involved in a problem. Sometimes I may physically leave the room or end a conversation. And sometimes I try to put spiritual space between myself and another person's alcoholism or behavior. This doesn't mean I stop loving the person, only that I acknowledge the risks to my own well-being and make choices to take care of myself. Today's reminder Now I know how to end an argument by simply refusing to participate, to turn to my higher power for help with whatever I'm powerless to change, to say no when I mean no, and to step back from insanity rather than diving into it. Detachment is a loving gift I can continue to give to myself and to others. Yeah, and then there's a quote there. If a man carries his own lantern, he need not fear darkness. And that comes from a Hasidic saying. Oh, did not know that. You wrote to me, said, I'd like to talk about 
being a teacher in recovery, something to that effect. You want to tell us a little bit about the background that led you to that? Yeah. So I had heard a, a recent episode where I think it was somebody that emailed in asking about an episode on the topic. And I immediately related, of course, being a teacher. I've been a teacher now since 12 years. This is the first time that I'm back in the classroom since I've been in recovery. I am an ACA. I think my family of origin is dysfunctional. There's some alcoholic behavior there, as well as some addiction. I think my mother is an untreated Al-Anon, and my father is probably my first qualifier. I realized that as a teacher, I was, and this is pre-recovery, I was recreating these dynamics in my work life. So much of my work life was spent managing, controlling, taking on responsibilities that were not mine. Some of it was the nature of the job, and I think we're drawn to it. There are uh, apparently a lot of ACAs and Al-Anons that are either in teaching or in caretaking roles. Sure. Yeah, totally understood that. Yeah. Yeah. So were these dynamics coming out between you and the students, you and your coworkers, you and the administration, or all of those or some combination? All of them and some combination. (laughs) Okay. So you've been teaching for a while, you said, but this is the first year after finding ACA. So what's your teaching experience a little bit? Just outline it. So I was a high school uh, science teacher for 10 years. I've always taught in public schools where students are experiencing a lot of trauma. And I think I was drawn to work with those students um, because I could relate. And pre-recovery, I didn't know why I could relate. I just, and it worked to to an extent until it became unmanageable for me. I think my perfectionism and that need to overperform is highly valued in the field that I'm in. Bringing your work home with you, staying late, coming early, all that good stuff. Yeah. Valued in the valued in the workplace, but maybe not so valuable in your life. And that's exactly what I saw around the time I had my bottom, my AC bottom was that I didn't have my own life Mm -hmm. outside of work. My entire life revolved around my job and the school. And all of my friends were there, my coworkers. And in a way, I think I felt comfortable in that sort of family structure because the schools I've worked in have been very small. They're actually alternative schools. The one that I was at in New York for nine years, I was there. I started my career there. Very small, progressive, alternative high school for students that had failed in traditional settings. So we ended up doing a lot of socio and emotional work Mm. with the students. And that idea of teachers wearing many hats, so true. I became used to being everything. For my kids. Teacher, social worker, therapist, probably other roles that I'm not naming. Counselor, big sister, mom, caretaker. Yeah. Taking on too much, though, for myself. I hear that. 
I have a little bit of teaching experience myself in my life. I taught at the university level for seven or eight years where you don't get really connected to your students, depending on the class. I wanted to be the guy whose office was always open that students could come and talk to and whether it was about what what we were doing in class or anything else. And I think that probably comes from my codependency. Then I moved into a non-teaching position in 1991, <laughs> a while ago. When I came into recovery, after I had been in recovery for a few years, I started working with the high school-aged youth at my church. What I wanted to bring to them was a safe space where we could talk about what I'd like to say was if we spent our hour-ish together talking about something that was important, it didn't matter whether it related to the topic that we thought we were going to be talking about that day or not. And I think that idea came right out of uh, my recovery work. Yeah, that resonates for me too, because I've noticed like a, a few years into teaching, I started to notice that as well, as long as we're having a, a conversation about something that's meaningful to them, that I don't have to control everything. And what my plan was for that lesson or that day, it may not be, and that's okay. Although in a public school, you are to some extent teaching to the test still, right? I had a very good experience at my school in New York City because I should say also I'm originally from New York. I moved out to the West Coast about three years ago, but the school that I spent uh, nine years at, because they're an alternative high school, we didn't have to take any of the state tests. Oh, okay. So we got to do project-based learning and really go deeper into issues that were of interest to them that I very creatively and painstakingly tied to the curriculum. Right. So I've been very grateful to have had that experience for so long where I wasn't confined or restricted to teaching a certain thing a certain way. Yeah, that's nice. So I understand that you're now in San Francisco teaching middle school rather than high school. Yeah. It was a little bit of a culture shock moving out here. <laughs> From New York to San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. I I worked in high school here for a year. I was hired in a position to teach and also coach brand new teachers, which is something I had done in New York as well. However, there just weren't enough hours in the day for me to oh. coach. Yeah, two brand new teachers and teach a full course load. Um, I, I could see... The coaching in particular, my codependency would totally grab onto that. Did that happen to you? It didn't actually. Oh, good. Yeah. I was in a good training program for it that I also went to in the no time that I had to do anything that year. (laughs) Yeah. And it was actually really good. And and we learned a lot of coaching skills. And I think I'll probably mention this later because now I'm in a different type of coaching that's outside of education. But so, yeah, very quickly, I realized with the commute as well, that was a couple hours easy. Yeah, I was commuting at that time. I lived in the East Bay and I was commuting 
to San Francisco by car every day. Oh my. <laughs> so that was my experience when I first got out here in 2018. I think about three months into the school year, I was burnt out, totally burnt out. Oof. I had taken on way too much. So by the end of that year, I was really burnt out and overcommitting. I didn't have any time to myself because of that commute. I was exhausted all the time and dealing with a very different culture of mm. education. And I think some of that is the East Coast mentality too, but some of it was a, a combination of other things. So I quit. Was that your bottom or was there something else that happened that that pushed you into or, or dragged you into or whatever the appropriate verb is into ACA? was one of them. I, I like to think of my journey to finding recovery as multiple bottoms, actually. Okay. So that was one of them because after I left that job at the end of the school year, I totally recoiled. And what I mean by that is if this is how they're doing things out here, I'm not going to be a teacher. This is not for me. I just, I left education after spending a decade and making a career out of it. And I took a corporate job and I was laid off in the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. And I was on unemployment for the first time in my life. I have been working since I was 14. So I was like, I don't have a job. Yeah. Question mark. What? How is this true for me? This, yeah. Yes. Yeah. What different emotions can you identify in that experience? There was a feeling of worthlessness at first, confusion, anxiety. I also realized emotionally I had abandoned myself in that working environment, I was putting everyone else's needs before mine. Feels familiar. Yeah. And I ended up running myself into the ground and then being tossed out. Yeah. Feels like shit, huh? Yeah. I was happy to be out of there because I had started recovery in the time that I was working there. The incident that caused me to actually start recovery was was a personal one. And then once I saw that situation in its proper light, I guess, okay. once I was able to shed light on that situation, I was able to see how I had been recreating that situation in my life and other areas. I'm going to go back to my family for a little bit just yeah. to give you some more um, details. My father, I think, is, and this is all, of course, undiagnosed. Right. Or sure. Yeah. What I like to say is it doesn't really matter whether your loved one identifies as alcoholic or addict. If their behavior, if they're drinking whatever is affecting you, welcome. Yeah. And of course, in ACA, they even said alcoholic and dysfunctional families are just dysfunctional families now. Yeah. So... You don't have to identify, you don't have to diagnose the disease to understand that you've been affected by something that looks like it. 
Yeah. And that was something that I really liked about ACA is that it, it didn't need to be diagnosed. And I right. felt like I belonged there. So you were talking about family. Sorry, I derailed that. <laughs> so before I started that, that job, I actually thought it was a good idea to go on a vacation with just my parents to Hawaii. What could possibly go wrong here, right? And this is pre-recovery. So yeah. I was like, hey, I got a free trip to Hawaii. This is awesome. I've never been there. And my mother really wanted me to go to take care of her because mm. my father had a business and a company that he was working for as a franchise. They had their annual convention that ah. year in Maui. Yeah. So that's why they went and he would have been in meetings all day and stuff. So she was like, well, I want to go, but I'm not, I don't want to go alone, essentially. <laughs> so I said, sure, I'll go. Being a very good codependent on that trip, I think it was the second day and it was the last day before his like meetings officially started for the week. He was very adamant about going on this drive. It's some thing, I guess, that tourists do. I think it's, it's the road to... Hana. To Hana, Yes. Yes. Yeah. I was still tired from traveling. My mother were like, we just want to lay by the pool, relax. And he couldn't, he just couldn't deal with that. He, throughout my childhood, and actually a lot of my adulthood as well, my father had a lot of rage that just would come out of nowhere, it seemed. Or the, the tiniest thing would set him off. So a lot of my childhood and, and my adulthood, I guess I should say a lot of my life, was spent walking on eggshells around mm -hmm. him. Don't poke the bear. Make sure that everything is perfect. That I'm perfect. The house is perfect. That I've done everything I needed to do so that there wouldn't be a problem. And my mother has spent, I think, her entire marriage to him managing that just to keep the peace. So that drive, the road to Hana, her and I didn't want to go. And the fact that we were just disagreeing, even though I was 35 years old, was enough to set him off. And it became very reminiscent of my childhood. So to prevent something, maybe an outburst or something, we decided to say, fine, let's go. And instead of taking a tour bus, which most of the people at the resort were doing, taking tour buses to go, he decided he wanted to drive there himself against the uh, advice of everyone. <laughs> In the hotel, the concierge, everyone was like, oh, there are buses that go. You take the bus because those roads are not safe. They're just not safe. And if you don't know them, like any cliffside drives, you've got to be very careful. We ended up n having near run-ins multiple times with other vehicles on the road. He was angry the entire time of that drive and yelling at us when we were asking him to stop and slow down. We actually almost got run off the road by a giant truck that had come around then and we literally inches away from going off a cliff. And afterwards, he just acted like nothing happened. This was fine and normal. I just asked Google about the road to Hana and there's, there's a question, is the road to Hana safe to drive? It's very safe for drivers who can keep their eyes on the road. Trust us, they'll be tempted to look around. It has many curves and one-lane bridges. Does that correspond to your experience? <laughs> yes. 
it does have many curves <laughs> and one lane bridges and one lane roads and trucks and trucks. And those trucks fly by because they're used to the roads. Yeah. And wow. Scary. Yeah. It was really terrifying. That experience totally changed my life, but also changed my relationship to my family. I couldn't internally reconcile the fact that there was just zero acknowledgement that he had put us in such danger and didn't think there was anything wrong with it. And I think that was his sickness, his disease, needing to control and do what he wanted to do. It's interesting that like rageaholism, it's like during those times, they're not mentally present really in a way so that afterwards even though at night when um, we were all trying to sleep I woke up in the middle of the night with nightmares and I just woke up crying and screaming when my mother said to him like she can't sleep she can't even sleep because of what happened what you did and he just it was like it didn't register and I think it just broke something inside of me hmm. something broke and it ended up breaking in a good way yeah because I held on to that. I stopped speaking to my father at that point. He called me. He called me on my birthday that year, which was about a month after that. And I reluctantly picked up the phone and I got off the phone very quickly. That was the last time I talked to him. And that was 2019. My parents are still married. So in 2019, in the fall, in the holiday season, I started recovery. I had held on to this secret of what had really happened and truly what kinds of things had really happened throughout my childhood that I never talked about because I never could talk about them with anyone. We weren't allowed to and we were just supposed to pretend like everything was normal and we're the perfect family. How did you know about ACA or find out about it? I ended up telling one of my friends who is a, a psychotherapist and she does Reiki and counseling and hypnotherapy. We actually used to work together in the schools in New York. <laughs> and I told her what happened because she posted something on Facebook about how secrets make us sick. <laughs> and I knew she was a safe person to talk to. Right. Yeah. So I told her, I said, I have a secret that I want to tell you because I think you're the perfect person for me to tell because you'll know what to do and you'll know how to help me. And we had a close enough friendship that we had shared some intimate things throughout the years of knowing each other and, and working together and being friends. Mm -hmm. I told her and she's the one who suggested ACUA. Cool. Um, yeah. So she suggested Al-Anon and then ACOA. She gave me homework. <laughs> she said, I want you to go to a meeting, go to a meeting, find a meeting. They're everywhere. She told me how I could find them and go to a meeting get numbers, go to as many meetings as you can in a week and talk to people, get phone numbers. And I want you to share in your first meeting. Wow. And I was like, <laughs> new people and going someplace I don't know yeah. and a lot. And of course, I was going through the, the grieving process as well of finally releasing what had happened and feeling the pain of it. It took me two months. I spoke to her in maybe early December. 
and I didn't go home for the holidays that year. And I told my mother why. And it took me about till the end of January of the following year of 2022, actually go to a meeting. I had bought the books. I did all the things that I could do without going somewhere and taking that extra step <laughs> and putting myself out there. Yeah. <laughs> but something that she said to me even pushed me because I knew I had to answer back to her as well. And so that accountability, but she said, you can't do this in isolation. You need to find people to talk to. You need to find people to share with. So I did. I went to an ACA meeting I found in the town I was living in, the East Bay. I walked in and I sat there with my arms crossed and I just was like looking down. I wouldn't look at anyone and everybody was so friendly. And I was like, why are these people so friendly? What do they want from me? So what happened after that? At the end of your first meeting, what did you feel, think? I, if you remember. Oh, I remember very clearly. I started bawling during another person's share. This woman shared about her, her marriage and some things that were happening in her marriage. And I immediately thought of my parents and my childhood. So I was able to relate and I just started crying and crying and I couldn't stop. And then they asked me to share. (laughs) (laughs) Can't you see I'm crying? What are you? (laughs) And I shared and it was very surface level because I found that Having never processed my emotions, it was like a flood of 35 years of emotions and I couldn't identify what was what. Mm-hmm. So I just shared surface level, there is something wrong and I don't know what it is, but there is something wrong. And at the end of the meeting, people came to talk to me and tell me to come back. And I did. I went to that meeting. I think one more time and then things got really bad at work and I knew the pandemic had happened. I knew that this was going south very quick. So you got laid off. You had already started ACA recovery, which presumably then you switched to more online meetings. Yeah. And now you're working as a teacher again. So there's what, a year and a half there where you st- did you start in the fall this year teaching again? Yeah. So what happened was I kept going to meetings while I was unemployed. I, w- I found an online one. I think I found that sometime in the summer when I was unemployed. And it felt like the right space. I felt like I belonged there. And it felt comfortable. In that time, I had also practicing my recovery. I had also found my connection to my higher power and really changed my practice of religion and my relationship to it because it's been an interesting journey. And I don't even like to say religion because I feel like culturally I was raised Hindu. My parents are Hindu. The way that we practice it, there's not so much of a like a regimented or religious sort of, I don't know what the word is, practice, I guess. I just didn't have my own relationship to my higher power. Yeah. It was all through family and I didn't quite understand some of it. So I was able to explore for myself, my relationship to God and learn how to pray, if that makes sense. Yeah. And through that, I just started praying for my higher power to 
bring me whatever I needed. And praying for guidance more than find me a job. And what that led to was taking a position at a middle school in November of 2020. Oh, okay. Yeah. They had been distance learning for a few months. They had three teachers before me in that position. Poor kids. Yeah. Yeah. Like three teachers between September and November? Yeah. Oh, my God. So I came in and I had actually knew, I knew the assistant principal from that coaching training program that I had done. I didn't know she was the assistant principal at the school. When I put in my application, she reached out and left me a voicemail and said, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm the assistant principal here. So we set up the call and she told me the situation. And for some reason, and I said this to her, I was like, maybe I'm crazy, but that sounds perfect. <laughs> Coming in as the, the fourth teacher for these kids in the middle of the year <laughs> to distance learning, which I had never done, and back to teaching after not teaching for a year and maybe a year and a half. So I'm interested. You've got at this point maybe close to a year in ACA. How did that change the way in which you looked at this position, this opening, which could very easily have looked like a, an opportunity to come in and save the day. Was that still in your head or did you like see that was there and say, okay, this is not what I'm going to try to do. I love that question. I love that question. So last year in remote teaching, the distance of it actually helped a lot. Had I been in person last year, I definitely would have gone in and tried to save the day. And I know that because that's what I had done a little bit this year (laughs) in person. (laughs) Yes. So not being in person and not physically picking up a lot of the energy with my body allowed me to keep my boundaries throughout that year or not quite a year of remote teaching. I didn't overcommit. I said, I'm doing things differently. I got to explore a lot of different things and actually enjoy where I'm living in this beautiful place. I started thinking about a a career on the side, and that's how I got into life coaching and spiritual coaching, because I had the freedom that was created by that distance. Uh Yeah. And then... So this year, we started the middle of August, and at first I was good about keeping my boundaries, and then I was not good (laughs) because I went into this fixing mode, Uh right, of Uh trying to take on responsibilities that were not mine. Old pattern, yeah. Exactly. Our kids have been out of school for a year and a half, I started noticing so many extreme behavioral issues, just beyond what is to be expected for seventh and eighth grade. And I think not having that time to develop socially, we just release them now to this environment. And it's almost like they have to learn how to be in school again and be around other people and not 
say and do everything that they think of doing and saying. <laughs> and in in my experience, both as a parent and as a as I say a Sunday teacher, there is such a wide range of maturity and social competence, even just in one year. And so on top of that, you put a year of isolation during the time when probably many of them are starting to go into puberty and having all new emotions and feelings and everything. And then you bring them back in and, they, and oh, wow. I, yeah. I'm, I'm not even going to go there. So you talked about losing your boundaries. You talked about starting to try to fix. Did you see this happening? Did, is there a difference here between this and your previous teaching experience where you're like, wait, I had boundaries and I have like totally collapsed them, overstepped them. Did you see that happening? I am thankful for my program tools that I did see it happening now. I guess I should say, uh, do you see that happening, right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so I I started off the year with, you know, keeping those strong boundaries. And as I saw things get more and more unmanageable with the students and the school, I decided that it was, and I'm, I'm going to say that clearly, I decided <laughs> that it was my job to step in and help lead or manage creating systems that would fix. Some of the work, I think, was necessary. And some of the work was not my role. If I were in more of an administrative role, which I had been used to being in my past, mm. then it would have been appropriate for me to continue as hard as I was continuing. But since that wasn't my role anymore, and I expressly decided I'm just teaching, I'm only teaching, I don't want this committee, I don't want this team, like I'm not doing all the things anymore. I'm not joining all the committees and wearing too many hats. I want to focus on my teaching to preserve my energy, to preserve my sanity, my, and maintain this lifestyle that I've had of having these boundaries that I enjoyed so much of focusing on myself. Mm -hmm. So I sat down with myself and I said, okay, what's my intention behind trying to fix this situation? And I came to the realization that it was trying to make my work life a little bit more manageable because I had been waking up in the middle of the night thinking about students if I had said this thing or if I had done this thing, or maybe if they could just do this, like trying to strategize at all hours of the day and night, and I was exhausted. And a lot of that is is part of the job. And I know other teachers that I work with and, and just know in our like teacher circles or whatever that like it's normal for you to wake up in the middle of the night thinking about a student. Mm -hmm. In my recovery life, I didn't want that to be normal. I didn't want to wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to sleep. And I'm trying to solve a problem with a kid that is way beyond my control. Because one thing that has helped me a lot is particularly the ACA version of the Serenity Prayer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Why, you, don't you, like, why don't you recite that for us? Because we've said it a few times, but it's helpful to be reminded. Yeah. 
I was just in my step group this morning. So we read it in there. So I have it open. Um, and that is, God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that one is me. A really good reminder. Yeah. So as you were talking about fix, I fixated on that word, if you will, <laughs> because fix is a really dangerous word for people like me. Sounds like you too. When I start thinking fix, if it's not about my car, that's a signal to me. Okay. I need to go talk to my sponsor. I need to get to a meeting. I need to read some literature or something. But then you said, what are my intentions? And we actually, I have a suggestion from Eric, and I think we're going to do a, a topic soon about motives and intentions. And that's a question that, that I, a friend of mine said to me once when I was saying, I think I want to do this thing. I want to help this person out. And my friend said, what's your motive? Oh, do I really think I can support this person or am I doing this because I think I'll feel better if I do it? And then you said, Something about wanting to, I, I don't remember the exact words you use now, but wanting to basically make it possible for you to do your job, I think is what I heard out of what you said. So understanding the serenity prayer part, like what is it that I can do and what is it that I have to let go of? Yeah, that's exactly it. So having sat with that question of what my intention was, I yeah. was able to figure out what I could do to change myself and to also bring some serenity to my work life. Something that I, I like to say to myself when I'm getting into obsessive thinking is I don't have to react to everything. I think that's especially useful for me in the classroom because there's 22 kids and as long as they're not threatening safety, physical safety or emotional safety, I don't necessarily need to react to everything that is said or done. If a student is not doing their work, that even though they're not an adult, that's their choice. As much as I'm over there, hey, you just need to do this one question. Oh, just do this. If they're not doing it and they've yeah. said to me, I don't care or I don't want to do this, I have to accept that. Yeah, I remember one one year... And when it was with the seventh graders, there was one person in the group who pretty much had no filter yeah. on whatever thought came into her head, came out of her mouth. Uh, and that could be disruptive or it could just be, you know, a random interjection. I like this not reacting. Like I don't have to react to everything. And I think I eventually figured that out. Like, I didn't have to react to everything she said. I, even if that reaction was just, that's not really what we're talking about right now. Because even that, I think, to some extent, also feeds the behavior. Absolutely. I said this thing and I got attention. Yeah. And I'm derailed in <laughs> conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, and when you got 22 kids, we had 8 to 10 kids. And it still was a little bit of a circus. The kid who wanted to lie on the floor under the chair and doodle instead of engaging. Okay. But I think also, I think I heard you say that you maybe were letting go of a sense of being responsible for whether they wanted to learn or not. 
yeah, I can't force somebody to do something. I can do my part in making it interesting, making it fun. Luckily, I teach science, so we have a lot of fun stuff going on. But there are some things that are outside of my control, like other people's behavior. And my classroom throughout my career has always been well-managed, like classroom management is a thing that I was so good at. And I think I was so good at it pre-recovery because it was all about controlling and managing others' behavior. Mm -hmm. How has that changed now that you're presumably letting go of, of control at least a little bit? For me, it's a practice in acceptance. The kids are learning. They may not be learning the way I think they should, right? Right. Or I may even want them to, but they are learning mm -hmm. and giving them that space, that emotional space of like, okay, here's the thing. I've asked you to do it. This is what we're doing today and not hovering and not trying to micromanage all of their behaviors throughout that class, I think is ending up actually building more of a rapport and a mutual respect. It's holding them to an expectation in a healthier way for me and for them. It might look like less accountability, but I'm allowing them the respect and the dignity of making that choice when they're ready to make it, as long as they're being safe while they're right. getting there. That sounds very recovery program oriented. <laughs> you wrote a couple of things here, Q-tip, quit taking it personally. So how does that work? Oh my, I'm not taking their attitude or behavior in the moment personally as a personal attack on me as a person and my classroom and as a teacher, I'm just saying, okay, I see where you are with this right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I can accept that. And everyone is going to do things in their own time. And I think when I was taking things personally, that's when I start waking up in the middle of the night thinking about the student <laughs> because right. I've internalized it way too much. Because of my overdeveloped sense of responsibility. Oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Not only taking their behavior as relating to you personally, but also taking it, taking it into yourself. <laughs> yeah. No, that's got to be so important. I thought that's what made me a good teacher for so long. And it may have, but it made me abandon myself. I'll put it that way. I'll go back to that saying. Uh -huh. right? Because then my entire life, my mind, my inner world becomes about them or about another person and their behavior rather than I need to get some sleep. So let me not think about this. Actually, I got an amazing recovery tool. I'm going to call it from you on a, one of your podcast episodes. I don't remember which one. I call it the gratitude ABCs. That is a wonderful tool that I use to go to bed. And that really helps with the obsessive thinking just so much. So I thank you for that. <laughs> because it, it takes your mind, your thinking, your feelings really to a different place. Yeah. Yeah. 
taking yourself to a place of gratitude rather than a place of obsession. Yes. How would you briefly contrast the way in which you approached teaching as a job, a profession, a life commitment before recovery with how you're approaching it now? I feel like my personality has changed. And before I had this supposed life outside of teaching, and then I had the teacher personality. And my teacher personality before was very committed to my job, and I still am. There was lack of boundaries. I would say one of the biggest shifts for me is I've really let go of that defect of character of sarcasm. Also, I'm dealing with younger kids, but prior to that, sarcasm was my mechanism of deflection, of keeping that teacher personality, making people laugh, making myself laugh. Not in a mean way, but it was a way of having my walls up. And I didn't really have a life outside of teaching. And maybe that's what I was trying to hide. Yeah. And now after recovery, teaching feels lighter. Mm -hmm. It feels like I, I don't have to carry the weight of the world and the responsibility of everybody. And I know my limits. I know my boundaries. I know when I start to slip and I'm much more aware of them and I can catch it quicker and do those things where I ask myself, what is my intention? What can I do? And what is outside of me? Is it mine or is it not? Because I'm able to do that, I'm able to have a life outside of teaching. I think the impact on me, of course, is great because I'm able to actually do things that I enjoy. I spent a lot of time figuring out what that even was. And having that fulfillment outside of my job, just for the purpose of having joy in my life, makes my job a lot easier. I have fun more. I'm not sarcastic with the kids. I don't have those walls up. I'm very honest with them. If they ask me a question, like a lot of them do, that's way too personal. Instead of a sarcastic remark, I just tell them, I don't really want to share that with you. Yeah. And they accept that. They say, okay. So I feel like my emotions are much more regulated throughout the day rather than reacting to something and letting it ruin my day or having it be a roller coaster because that's not good for me. Most importantly, it's not good for me, but it's also not good for my students. So it sounds like ironically taking down the walls has actually let you more easily, more comfortably separate your teaching life from your personal life. Yeah. Wow. I never thought of it that way. Huh. Well, I'm glad I can provide one moment of insight. <laughs> My job is done. <laughs> After we recorded this episode, Helen sent a share about being a teacher in recovery. She writes, I've been a teacher for nearly 30 years. And I recall being drawn to the profession for reasons that most likely relate to my codependency. 
As with other vocations, helping others is the role's largest element. Responsibility for the lives of others is inherently required, and this also means a teacher commands a great deal of control. When I started on my path to recovery, I began to see how challenging an environment education is, for there are many chefs in the kitchen in schools. Often, the children's best interest can be used as a justification for the self-will of the member of staff. I began to let go of my self-will and set boundaries with colleagues, and in the end found myself moving into a more senior role, which was somewhat detached from work and schools. Working in education has given me so much, but I also wonder if it has always been healthy for me in terms of my controlling behavior. Certainly, I have had mental health issues and always felt that the nature of my work compounded them. However, now I no longer work directly with children and families. I am struggling with feelings of guilt and low worth about that. Being a teacher became part of my identity, and now I have to look at how that filled a hole within me. Luckily, I am working step five with my sponsor, and so it seems my higher power brought me to this point at this time for a good reason. Regards, Helen H. Thank you for that share, Helen. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery is working in our daily lives. I always ask my guests to pick music. What's the first selection that you chose? Our first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website at therecovery.show slash 371, is The Indigo Girls with Closer to Fine. Love that song. Such a great song. I feel like I've always got it in my head. So for me, this song is about finding recovery and connection with my higher power. So some of the lyrics are, well, darkness has a hunger that's insatiable and lightness has a call that's hard to hear. And I wrap my fear around me like a blanket. I sailed my ship of safety till I sank it. I'm crawling on your shores. And then later in the chorus, the line that really resonates for me, there's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line. And the less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. Yeah. Yeah. So things don't have to be linear or work out a certain way. Yeah. And that's okay. this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? And since you've been doing a lot of talking, I'll talk for a little bit. I was thinking about this and there are so many things that I could touch on, but the one that came up for me just a couple of days ago, I was out walking the dog, which is an, an activity that I do a lot more since the pandemic. I noticed that there was this weird flashing happening in the corner of my eye and it was like light was reflecting off the rim of my glasses or something like this just a little flash but there wasn't any light to be doing that and i thought this is weird and the next day it was still happening and i started to get a little bit concerned of course i went to the internet because that's where all good medical advice lives i just typed in like flashes in the corner of my eye or something like that and the diagnoses range from, what's the word I want, benign to, oh my God, your retina is coming loose and you're going to go blind. At least that's the way I interpret it, right? Yeah. And then the next day, I've always had these little floaters in my eyes, these little sort of cells floating around in my vision forever. But there's some new ones. And I was like, okay, 
this probably needs to see the doctor sooner rather than later. The recovery part for me is not spending time in denial, not spending time in fear of finding out what's wrong, and thus not calling the doctor, right? I don't want the answer, so I'm not going to call the doctor. That is something that I have lived with for a long time. I don't want to know what the answer to this thing is, so I'm not going to look. So I went out of the portal that my medical system has, and I, I put in a request for an appointment. And of course, I did it on Saturday. So I won't hear till Monday when they can actually get me in, but I'm hoping that they can get me in relatively soon. But having done that, I'm also able to mostly let go of the anxiety that, oh my God, I'm going to go blind. So the tools that I have that I've developed, the changes in the way I live during the time I've been in recovery, help me to deal with this thing that could be serious, could be nothing. I don't think it's nothing, but I don't have to spend my time in fear and I don't have to go live in the wreckage of the future where they've done some surgery on my eyeball and I have to lie face down for two weeks, um, only being able to get up for five minutes every hour or whatever that routine is that I know some people who've done it, like my sister. I don't have to go there. I don't have to know that, oh my God, this is what's going to happen. At the same time, I can think about, well, if it does happen, what do I do about the responsibilities that I have? And it just makes for a a more reasoned and less reactionary approach to what what might or might not happen, what they might or might not find out. Of course, there's this thing like in my head that says, if you don't ask, you won't get the answer you don't want. And what I know is if the answer is the one I don't want, not asking just means it's going to get worse. And asking the question as early as possible means that we can start to address whatever the actual problem is, which might be, yeah, okay, you've got this thing going on and you're going to live with it because it's not serious enough to cut into your eyeball. Oh my God, that just scares the heck out of me. <laughs> no, I don't want to, I don't even want to think about it, but I can, I can. And like I said, I know some people who've been there and they got through it. Hey, I'll get through it. I know that gotten through a lot of shit so far. So I don't know, that's the, the big thing that came up for me about how I'm using the tools of recovery. It's something that is not at all about recovery, but it, it's, it makes my life easier and it helps me to stay in some kind of serenity instead of going off into a, a worry storm. How about you? How's, how's recovery working outside of work for you? Huh. Well, I think that I've been talking with my mother more often than mm -hmm. I usually do. In the past, recent past, I've had to put up some strong boundaries with her. But it's not that my boundaries are coming down now. It's that I think I'm starting to accept her where she is and not feel like because I don't agree with her choices that we can't have a relationship. I think it's a good lesson in loving detachment and I'm practicing talking with her, which mostly involves her talking um, and me listening. Yeah. To how her day is going, the gardening, the groceries, and they don't have good apples at the store. And 
all of these things. And I don't get frustrated anymore. Mm. It used to be like, I don't want to hear this. This is too much. I And I want to talk about me and I want to have a balanced conversation. And we each say something and then we respond to what each other says. And she, the truth of it is she's not. And I don't know if she'll ever be there. And I have to accept that. And not so much for her benefit, but I'm accepting it for my own serenity and for the relationship that I want to have with her. And it's not going to be perfect. I don't have a relationship with my father anymore. So she's not perfect. I'm not perfect. And the times that we do communicate, it's going to look how it's going to look. And either I accept it or I don't communicate. There are a lot of things we don't talk about and that's okay. And I'm getting more comfortable with that, not feeling like I have to share everything with her. And that was our relationship prior to my recovery, that codependency, calling and talking multiple times a day. And then it went to my detachment with anger of, I'm just not going to talk to you at all. So now I feel like I talked to her earlier this morning and I just was able to not get so emotionally invested in the conversation. It also felt warm and that sort of detachment with love in a way that it hasn't before. And I've noticed that the last couple of times I've spoken to her. So yeah, that's what's going on for me this week. Thanks. So we talked a little bit um, during our conversation about this upcoming topic of motives and I was looking for contributions to our topics. So you can join the conversation. You can leave a voicemail, send an email with your feedback or your questions. The question that you might focus around perhaps is before I make a decision to do something, I ask myself, what is my intention for wanting to do blank? How does that show up in your life? Let us know. And, and Rajni, how can people send us feedback, send us their questions, send us their contributions? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of teaching and recovery, or any of our upcoming topics, including motives. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to, to feedback at the recovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spell it. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about the recovery show? Hey, you can find hopefully everything you need to know on our website, which is the recovery.show. There we have notes for each episode. This episode will be at the recovery.show slash 371. 
We have links to the books that we read from, uh, videos for the music, and there also are some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. If you want to uh, refer a friend to The Recovery Show, one of the best ways to do that is to give them the website, therecovery.show. And once you're there, you can subscribe or follow on your favorite podcatcher, or you can listen to episodes right there on the website. So we'll take a short break before we look at our listener feedback. And what is the second selection here? Tell us about Be Okay by Ingrid Michelson. Yeah, I think it's a pretty simple song, which is what I love about it too. Some of the lyrics open me up and you will see. I'm a gallery of broken hearts. I'm beyond repair. Let me be and give me back my broken parts. And then the chorus is, I just want to be okay. I just want to be okay today. I just want to feel today. I just want to feel something today. Mm. Yeah. So when I hear this song, I think about letting go of perfectionism, embracing inner wounds or our broken parts, and really just living in acceptance and harmony with those parts. Thanks. Now it's time to hear from you. Gina wrote with some Al-Anon World Service news. She writes, Hi, Spencer. This was announced at our area assembly, and I wanted to share with the Recovery Show community. I have heard such great insights on your show about the concepts and traditions, so perhaps any listeners and co-hosts of the show would also like to contribute. Our three legacies, recovery through the steps, unity through the traditions, and service through the concepts, provide the foundation for the al program. Please help our new daily reader be the first to include sharings on all 36 of these priceless gifts. In 200 to 300 words, please share your personal insight into how one of the 12 steps, traditions, or concepts of service helped you in your recovery. If you wish, end your sharing with a today's reminder summary, a thought-provoking question, or a pertinent quotation from Al-Anon literature, including source and page number. More information is available at a link that I will put in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 371. Gina continues, Additionally, another interesting topic was raised at the area meeting about making a more inclusive, gender-neutral, and religion or dogma-neutral adaptation of the 12 steps by simply using the word God instead of him or his. The changing of the wording of the legacies has been discussed at many World Service conferences. The process to initiate the change is described on page 36 of the 2014 World Service Conference Summary here. Another link that, again, I'll put it in the show notes. Please note, the description is part of a report on trips beginning with the third paragraph on page 36. Okay. This version of the 12 steps has been brought up to Al-Anon World Service Office. In order for this adaptation to be an approved version of the 12 steps for registered L9 groups to use, the agenda item must pass through the links of service through group conscience, starting at the group level. It must be voted on by the majority at each level, like district and area, and carried up through the links of service in this order. From individual member, to meeting group conscience, to group representative, to district representative, to area delegate or area chair. Bring to the floor of the conference or bring the suggested change to the policy committee or the board of trustees so that it goes on the conference agenda. Whew. 
once the conference votes in favor, and it has to be three-quarter vote in favor, then the agenda item is directed back and polls the groups worldwide asking for three-quarters of registered groups worldwide to vote on the topic. So you can see it's pretty hard to change the steps or the traditions or the concepts to change the wording. Here is the proposed new wording. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong promptly admitted it. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So they're pretty similar, just no him or his anymore. Gina continues, in the end of the discussion, this information was shared and I found it very interesting. There was discussion that just like Elanon had to adapt to online meetings with Zoom, we can continue to adapt and progress together in Elanon. So if you're interested in this option for meetings to have either the suggested traditional 12 steps or the autonomy to use God instead of him is with this adapted version, you can write to WSO in support of this topic. But more importantly than just contacting World Service Office, Discuss and vote at your local group and district meetings so that it can ultimately be brought to the conference agenda through your area assembly. Okay, so that's what has to happen. Interesting. She signs, thanks for your service. Keep well, Gina. And thanks, Gina, for bringing that. I had actually heard that, but yeah, putting it out here maybe broadens the message a little bit to listeners of the podcast. So thanks. Michael wrote, Good afternoon. I feel so incredibly blessed to have come across your podcast within the last month, and I have been listening intently to past shows and absolutely amazed that I'm not alone. My wife has been a very active alcoholic for the last six years, and this has an immense effect on my three daughters, 21, 20, and 15, and me. So many negative things have taken place, including Child Protective Services removing my wife, a 90-day inpatient stay cut short by 30 days because of her lying through the recovery center program to get out early, albeit against medical advice, only to start drinking immediately again within two days. Two divorce filings on my part with two reconciliations, only to be in the same spot again after commitments to quit and only to fail once again. I have heard every excuse in the book, been accused of being the cause of alienating our daughters from her, etc. My once professionally driven wife has gone from a corporate attorney and CPA to being out of work now, and she seems to have a mind that has turned to mush and almost no drive. The subject line of guilt parenting is something that I believe has been taking place for years to make up for what my daughters have been subjected to by my wife and by me not willing to follow through with a divorce much sooner. In addition to my failures, but also guilt parenting by my wife for the very intermittent moments of sobriety to apologize for her behavior by purchasing items and gifts for them. I have always been the safe one in the house for my girls, and they have come to rely on me for everything, and I have grown not to mind it at all and really embrace it because of what they mean to me. 
I recognize that I do many of the things, acts of service for them, from the basis of household actions, whether it be laundry, cooking, cleaning, lining up therapist appointments, speaking to their doctors and therapists, to almost whatever else they need. In my day and growing up, it would be called being spoiled because I grew up in a close and loving environment and we all had roles. But with what my girls have been through, I call it guilt parenting. I've looked through so many of the past episodes and I wonder if this has been addressed. Your podcast has been a lifesaver for me in so many ways and I have changed my behavior with respect to my wife by no longer trying to control her drinking, engaging with her when she's drunk, to detaching from her with love, allowing me to speak from my heart with honesty, kindness and compassion, albeit within my own boundaries. My two youngest daughters have done the same with my youngest daughter, who was the last one at home, almost divorcing her mother for the years of her behavior with broken promises. In closing, I can't get enough of these episodes, and I'm so thankful for everyone's contributions and insights to helping me to understand I'm not alone. Your generous acts of service are greatly appreciated, and thank you very much. Michael, I like that term, guilt parenting. It's not, I think, something that we've, you know, talked about specifically but it, it is an intriguing topic, and I would ask if you're listening and you'd like to share on guilt parenting and how that has appeared in your life, send me an email, and we'll set up a time to record it. Mike in the Mitten left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Mike in the Mitten, approaching the half-year point of my time in al and I'm slowly working my way uh, through your past episodes. Uh, podcast. Through my searches, obviously, there's a lot in our execution of our 12 steps. But I was wondering if you have any past characters on or interest in doing content on the topic of receiving amends from your qualifier. Thank you. And you're doing a great job and a great service to a community that really needs it. Thank you. So the question is, have we done an episode on receiving amends from your qualifier? I don't think we have. Carrie writes, Dear Spencer, I just listened to your most recent episode, 369 Healing Through Writing. 369 episodes, wow. Thank you for this level of dedication and service. I know without a doubt this podcast has helped countless people who are hurting and in need of the experience, strength, and hope that has been shared over the years. I discovered your podcast this summer when I came to terms with the fact that my loved one was, in fact, an alcoholic. I questioned this for a while and was always confused as they didn't drink every day. But when they did drink, there was no stopping. They were the life of the party and all their friends seemed to encourage the behavior, all except for me. I broke up with them for a few months because of the drinking, only to find they came back to me and said all the things I wanted to hear. It was like a dream come true. After all, I still loved them. Alcohol was not worth it if it meant not having me in their life, they said. Two months later, we were surprised with a pregnancy. We are in our forties. Soon after my loved ones started drinking again, I pleaded, cried, and felt hurt by this behavior. I wanted to leave them and felt ashamed for taking them back, but I stayed. After all, I was pregnant and afraid of raising our child alone. But in essence, I am alone still. I have shouldered the responsibility of raising our child who is almost a year old. This whole time, I kept questioning whether they were an alcoholic and finally decided it didn't matter. I needed help. I found Alan on this summer and I'm grateful for what I now know is, in fact, alcoholism and could see my role in making the situation worse. Just a few months in and I'm thankful for all I have learned. 
I have looked forward to gaining more insight and serenity through my higher power and those who are willing to share their stories. We are not alone. It has been hard to make meetings with a little one, so your podcasts have been my saving grace. I now struggle with the decision of whether to stay or go, and I'm grateful for the phrase, don't just do something, sit there. I realize it is okay to focus on being present in the moment at hand. There's still more to learn, and I can trust that my higher power will guide me. All I have to do is be open to listening. Thank you for blessing my life and so many others, Carrie. Thank you, Carrie, for writing, and thank you for sharing your experience. I'm happy to hear that you have found some recovery in your life. Keep coming back. It works if you work it, as we say. I have a couple of shares from Alina. One on the episode, I didn't get sober for this shit, which was 212. And one on episode 214, sadness and loneliness. Hi, my name's Alina. I wanted to share on episode number uh, 212, which is entitled, I didn't get sober for this shit. There's a few questions. What are you discarding from your life and your recovery? And what are you keeping? And what do you want to add? I really like these questions and I really enjoyed the topic. I guess in my recovery, I'm always trying to work on myself, use my tools, trying to not let the chaos that's going on around me or anything that anyone's saying or doing causing me to react in any certain way. I guess I never really considered discarding things in my life. I guess for me, that would mean setting boundaries and I'm pretty good at setting boundaries, but it's really hard to keep them. And I find myself turning things over again and again to God. Some things I'm pretty good at, I guess if it's something that's not really closely related to me, if it's something to do with work or a client or a coworker. But when it comes to like my qualifiers, it's really hard. Even with my family, sometimes it's really hard. I guess that's just something I need to work on. So this, you know, podcast helped me decide what do I need to discard and I know that I'm keeping a lot. I tend to hold on to a lot of resentment sometimes build up for me, and it's hard for me to let those go. But I know that there was another podcast. It was the end of the year one, and it said something like, what do you want to let go of? Or if you could let go of something. And I just said a lot of disappointments. It's hard sometimes because those come to surface and Usually they come to surface when I'm not in the good state of mind or when something's bothering me. And I guess as far as what I want to add to my recovery, I definitely need to finish working on the traditions. The steps were really good and I enjoyed working those with my sponsor and just felt that I accomplished a lot. It was really gratifying to realize how far I've come because I don't really think about that too often. I just try and stay in the moment and when you finish or accomplish a step, you realize that things are good, that there's still going to be problems, there's still going to be obstacles, and nothing's perfect. But then again, nothing's forever either. I enjoyed this podcast, and uh, I hope everyone's doing well. I wanted to talk about episode number 214. It was entitled Sadness and Loneliness, and I could really relate to this topic and what was discussed in the podcast. A lot of times, It's hard for me to express to other people that I do feel lonely and sometimes I feel bad for feeling lonely because I realize that there's so much in my life. I have people that care for me and love me 
my husband, my, my mom, some of my family are always thinking of me and my best friend. But it is hard sometimes because I still feel lonely sometimes. I get that way. I'll do good for a few weeks, I would say four or five weeks, and then it'll hit me. And it doesn't have to really be anything. But I know that one of my qualifiers, it's very hard for him to pay attention and to dedicate time. We both work a lot of hours. We're both tired. We try to fit in quality time. But I feel like sometimes I just need that opportunity to share my feelings. And when they aren't validated, I do feel lonely. And uh, I know that I have my Al-Anon support friends and my sponsor and everything. And I'm so grateful for that. Because if I didn't have that, I would probably maybe be depressed a little bit. But sometimes you just want certain people, or I do anyway, I just want certain people to validate me or listen or understand or hear me. And when I don't get that, I do start to feel lonely. I know there is a difference between loneliness and being alone. And I know that I'm definitely not alone, especially with Al-Anon and my meetings. Sometimes there's just, for me, those moments where I just want to let everything go and maybe have someone take care of me for once. I know I shouldn't have those expectations, but sometimes I do. I just feel overwhelmed sometimes, especially with my job. I'm in a supervisor type role and a lot of things depend on me, the outcome of the day, how the day goes from beginning to end. A lot is relied upon me and I try to delegate a lot and I know we all play a role. I'm not saying that I'm the only one. We do have a whole staff, a whole team, but the day starts with me and I know that I have to have a good attitude, a good mindset, not to let, you know, other staff affect my mood or be too codependent on their feelings and what they're going through and not take that on and just just be there and listen and support and have a boundary with that. It is hard sometimes because I feel so responsible for everyone's happiness and how they work and what is going on in the day. I just realize even with my qualifier too, if he's not having a good day, then it affects me. And I know that I can't go there. It can't be that way. It's definitely some things to work on, but I definitely could relate to a lot in this podcast. I just appreciate it, which just makes me happy knowing that I'm not the only one. So thank you for letting me share. Thanks, Selena. Thank you. Reggie, what is your third song that you picked? Yeah. My last song or last song selection is Runaway Train by Soul Asylum which you can listen to at the recovery.show slash 371. So I think this song is about the singers living with depression. For me, it describes my obsessive thinking that sometimes is like a runaway train in the middle of the night. And those are some lyrics too. When I'm out of alignment or not practicing my recovery as well as I'd like to, I'm waking up in the middle of the night and having that runaway train of obsessive thinking. I know when that happens, I need to use my recovery tools. Some of the lyrics are, so tired that I couldn't even sleep. So many secrets I couldn't keep. Promised myself I wouldn't weep. One more promise I couldn't keep. It seems no one can help me now. I'm in too deep. There's no way out. 
this time I have really led myself astray. Thank you. Thank you, Rajni, so much um, for coming and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with me and with anybody who's listening. Thanks. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you for your show. And thanks for having me. It was really nice talking to you. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.